was payday, and so he got his check and got off work, and he went out with his buddies, and they, they just started partying it up and carousing and going all over town, and Friday turned into Saturday, and all day Saturday, and Saturday turned into Saturday night, and by, by Saturday night, it was just a wild time, him and his buddies, and, he had, and, and somewhere late Saturday night, he had spent all his paycheck money, and then he finally went home Sunday morning, and he opened the door, and there was his wife staring at him. And as you might imagine, she was irate. I mean, she was livid with Bob. How dare you? What were you thinking? You spent all of our money. Here you are out carousing. I didn't see you for two, three days. What could you be doing? You know, on and on. She went on and on for an hour and then two hours. And finally, at the end of her tirade, she said, you know what, Bob? How would you feel? How would you like it if you didn't see me for two or three days? Now, Bob, as you can imagine, wasn't the brightest guy. And so Bob said, well, that'd be okay with me. Well, Monday, Bob didn't see his wife. Tuesday, he didn't see his wife. Wednesday, same thing. And then sometime late afternoon on Thursday, the swelling went down just enough so he could see his wife just out of the corner of his eye. <laughs> Bob learned the hard way that there's a better way to treat people. Let's pray. God, it is great to be together, and it's so great to look at your word, and I pray that your word will speak to us today. Help us to really take hold of it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We're reading Mark chapter 12. We're going to go... And start in verse 35. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on the screen. If you have a phone or a Bible and an app, whatever, feel free to read along. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, if you've been following our series, you know that Jesus, it's in the last week of his life. It's Tuesday, probably sometime in the afternoon or late afternoon. And he is in the temple court area. And he's been spending most of the day in various arguments with religious leaders, temple officials. And the reason why is because the day before on Monday, Jesus had a significant moment there in the temple. He cleared the temple out of the money changers and the, and the uh, uh, salesmen and the merchants and the caravans that were disrupting worship. And not only that, but he called down the condemnation of the temple itself. He called for an end to the temple. In fact, he said that God was going to destroy the temple and that whole religious system of, of the Mosaic law and, and all the sacrifices, the sacrificial system that came with it and the, and the temple itself would all be wiped away. You could imagine that the religious leaders who had been serving there for generations at that temple, who saw this as God's holy place, his house on earth, were greatly offended. And so they engaged him in many different arguments on Tuesday. Yes, the last time, the last argument we, we saw him get into was with the teacher of the law. We talked about who they were, very respected, very educated men whose job it was, was to read the Bible, to memorize the Bible, and to be able to teach the Bible to other people. And this teacher of the law heard Jesus in his different arguments, and he was somewhat impressed, but at the same time, 
he, we kind of got the impression that he didn't really think Jesus was all that. He didn't think he was super qualified. So he challenged Jesus with a question to try to reveal that Jesus wasn't really as qualified as, as people might think he was. And Jesus showed himself to be even more qualified, even to the point of impressing that teacher of the law. This account now is a continuation of that interaction. I want you to imagine Jesus returns to the temple. There are literally tens of thousands of people that have swelled the city of Jerusalem up because it's the Passover holiday. The population of the city is probably 10, 15, 20 times its size, its normal size. There's literally thousands upon thousands of people there by the tens of thousands. And of course, many of them are in the temple complex. They're doing their various religious uh, uh, practices there and getting their spiritual fix, so to speak. And they see Jesus clear the temple. He's, he's a big deal at this point. He's kind of a big deal right now. And they see what he does, and then they see the, 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 the temple authorities. They're on him, and they're trying to get rid of him, and they're shocked by what he did. They, they want to kill him at this point, not just want to kill him. They're making plans to kill him. But the people loved him, and they loved what he was doing, and they loved his, his uh, passion and his desire for pure religion and his confrontation of the religious authorities and the structure that, that, that they, they had entrenched themselves in. And so in the midst of these arguments, there's crowds watching what's going on. And in that last argument, when he, when he really showed that teacher of the law, sometimes they're also called scribes, by the way. So if I say scribes, don't get confused. It's the same thing. He really showed that scribe that he knew his stuff. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. And he asks the question about the teachers of the law. And in many ways, Jesus goes from defense to offense in this moment. He turns around and he goes on the offensive and now he's questioning the scribe's qualifications. And he does so by bringing up a common teaching of the day, that the Messiah would be the son of David. But Jesus challenges this guy's theology and the teachers of the law in general and really the mainstream teaching of Judaism at the time. He challenges the theology by quoting David himself. He's reading from Psalm 110 where David seems to talk, talk seems to describe the Messiah as Lord. And so Jesus is asking the question, how can he be a son when he's the Lord? And you can see that the teachers of the law did not have a good answer to this question. He found a hole in their theology. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive today. Last couple Sundays, we've been brief. Today, I'm not going to go long, but we're going to go deep. And I want to share with you a little bit of context so we understand what's actually happening in this interaction. About a thousand years before Jesus stood in the temple, a man named David was risen up in the Israelite community. And he became a king in Israel. In fact, he was their greatest king. And to this day, they still celebrate King David. And as Christians, we find our, we have a common heritage. We celebrate King David. He was a great hero of the faith. David took a group of 12 tribes of Israelites who were living kind of scattered throughout Palestine, what they called the promised land, and organized them into a military force. And he went about 
clearing out the promised land of all the peoples who were there who were godless and, and, and guilty of much sin before God and making the promised land, Palestine, the home country of the people of Israel. Now, God had asked him to do this. This was, this was by design. But David was the guy, and he was, he was the first, not the first, but he was like the best, he was the second, but the best king of Israel. And he was the guy that really unified the country, turned them into an actual nation. And he made their capital city Jerusalem. And, and it was always his dream to build the temple right there in Jerusalem. But God, God said, no, you're too much of a warrior. That's not for you. But your son Solomon will do that. And his son Solomon did. He built the temple in, in, in Jerusalem right there in Palestine, in the city of Jerusalem. And that became the government and the civic and the religious capital of the people of Israel. It was their capital city. And all the stuff that mattered went on there in Jerusalem. And this kingdom lasted for a couple hundred years. But there was some internal strife. It divided after a while. And then eventually got overcome by foreign armies. In particular, the Babylonians, who destroyed not only the city of Jerusalem, but the temple and everything else in about 586 B.C. And from that time on, the people of Israel lived under foreign governors, under foreign rule. But during that time, prophets sent by God began to talk to the people. And they had various messages, but one message started coming up as a theme in, in, in many of the prophets' prophecies. And it was this message that one day a Messiah would be risen up. The word Messiah is a word for Savior. And, and, and these prophets taught that this Messiah would rise up and he would free the people from their enemies. In the time of Jesus, it was common to refer to the Messiah, this Messiah, as a son of David. Because they understood him to be a warrior like David. A man who would rise up, who would raise an army, and throw off the yoke of their foreign oppressors. But Jesus challenged that theology. And he challenged it by quoting David himself. And so we're going to take a dive now into the words of David, Psalm 110, which is the quote that Jesus gives here. And I want you to remember, a couple weeks back we talked about this. This was a culture that was steeped in biblical memorization. They memorized the Bible more than wrote it down and read it. They had a strong oral tradition. It was not uncommon for people to know whole books of the Bible. And so... It's very possible, in fact, it's my opinion, that when Mark records, Mark wrote this gospel, the gospel of Mark, when he records, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies through your feet, what he's really saying is Jesus quoted this whole psalm, and that first sentence is the reference point, how, how, where to find it in the scrolls. So I want you to understand that when Jesus said that sentence, it probably wasn't that sentence, but in fact, it was the entire psalm that we're going to look at now. And it's going to give us some really interesting insights into how David understood the Messiah. What would that be? Who would that be? What would he be like? Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your seat. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be, on, will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so will lift his head high. So this is David writing this psalm. And David talks about this. He observes a conversation between the Lord and my Lord. And and the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. What we see in that phrase is a clear indication that the Messiah, whoever this character is, the Jews really believed that this passage was talking about this Messiah that would one day come and rescue the people. Well, David, in his prophetic moment, he saw this Messiah not as a human, but as, a, as God. That's what that phrase, sit at my right hand, means. I mean, if, if you, in those days especially, there was honored places at a table. If you sat at a king's table, there were honored places you could sit, and the most honored was the right-hand seat. Well, now, what if God offers you the chance to sit at his right hand? I mean, that is the highest honor in the universe. That's not something a mere mortal can, can have, can do, can fulfill. And so he's clearly making an indication here that whoever this Messiah is, he's not, he's not only human, he's much more than that. He's divine. And so how could he be called a son of David when he's something so much greater? But, Jesus, but the psalm goes on. And in verse 4, it says, You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Not only is this Messiah divine, but this Messiah is not a warrior. Look at the language. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. It goes on, verse 4, the Lord is your right hand. He will crush the kings. In other words, God himself is going to do the warrioring. But this Messiah is going to do the priesting in the order of Melchizedek. Well, now who's Melchizedek? Well, we're going to have to take another dive. It's like Inception. We're going from one dream to another now. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna end up in the common consciousness at some point if we keep doing this. But here we go. Let's find out who's Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14. After Abram returned from defeating Kirtlamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Solomon came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, in Jewish theology, there was a whole story of Melchizedek. In fact, we have a similar theology in Christianity about Melchizedek. And it all comes from this one passage. This is all we know about Melchizedek. This is the only reference to him historically. And you would think, wow, there's almost nothing here. How can we develop a theology about this guy? How did they develop a theology about this guy? Well, let's let's look at what we do know. Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abraham. In fact, later Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his spoils. What this this passage is communicating is that Melchizedek was somehow greater than Abraham. And Abraham is honored by the Jews, by the Christians, and today even by the Muslims as the father of all faith. And somehow he 
was blessed by and tithed to Melchizedek, which puts Melchizedek a notch above Abraham. And of course, he was a priest of God's Most High, and there's no story of Melchizedek sinning or making any mistakes. Unlike many of the other heroes in the Bible, Christian and Jewish, we see their whole life put before us, and they all have their good and their bad points, but not Melchizedek. The only thing said about him, priest of God Most High. In other words, he was uncorruptible, or is it incorruptible? I don't know. Either one. He was on or incorruptible. He couldn't be corrupted. Put it that way. But here's the interesting thing about Melchizedek. There's no origin story. I know uh, comic books are a big deal. My son Kelly loves them, and he went to see Infinity War. And I, we talk every Sunday, and he gives me the whole origin story of every hero in every comic book. There's no origin story. There's no ending story. What did, they, what did the Jews and what did Christians think about that? How do they interpret that on, on a theological perspective? Well, well, they interpreted that he was eternal. He had no beginning, and he, no, he had no end. So he wasn't a human And so who does Melchizedek represent? He represents a divine, eternal priest who's uncorruptible. That's the Messiah. Wouldn't you love it if our leaders today, if it just had one of those qualities? Well, maybe not the eternal one. But other than that, wouldn't you love it if they just had one of the other two ones? like uncorruptible or if they were divine in some way wouldn't that be so comforting wouldn't that be so so awesome to think about man we've got this leader and not only is he a good i mean he's perfect he makes no mistakes he can't even be corrupted he's going to live forever he's going to make everything perfect he's going to minister to us like a priest i mean that would be the hope of everybody that's who mckelzadek was that's who david understood the Messiah to be a divine, eternal, uncorruptible priest. Yet the mainstream teaching of the teachers of the law and the scribes of the day was that the Messiah would be a son of David, a warrior, a man who would rise up and throw off our oppressors. It was such a, such a far cry from the ideal that David himself wrote about and that Jesus was saying the true Messiah would be. At the end of the passage, it said that the people loved, they delighted in this teaching. For sure, they loved seeing the teachers of the law get stumped. For sure, they loved these scribes who thought very highly of themselves and their education. They loved to see them get kind of knocked down a few rungs when they couldn't, they couldn't compare with Jesus' theology. They loved it. But there's another reason, I believe, why they loved hearing Jesus. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. You know where we are right now, right? We're in the temple courts. Jesus has just finished an interaction with a group of scribes, of teachers of the law. They challenged him. 
They tried to show him up. He showed them up, and then he went one step further and really showed that they had a lot of holes in their belief system. And now he turns to the crowd and he says, watch out for them. Now, I got to say something in fairness. I don't believe that every teacher of the law or Pharisee or scribe or, or religious authority there at the temple was a bad guy. But I know they were men, and so they weren't perfect. And some were probably worse than others, and some were probably more sincere than others. But it seems to me, in reading the Gospels, that there tended to be, uh, at least those in positions of authority, they tended to be worse they tended to be pretty corrupt and pretty unpleasant people. And I don't think the people, uh, I don't think that was missed on the average person. Like they could, they, they saw this stuff. And so here's Jesus pointing out, look out for these guys. The more powerful they are, the more influential they are, the worse they get. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. They weren't perfect. There were probably some good ones, but as a whole, they were pretty dastardly people. These are the priests. These are the religious leaders. And they were more concerned about their appearance. They were into how they looked, man. They liked to, what's the word, floss or whatever. I, what's, what's the phrase nowadays? They liked to, to one thing I can think of is preen, but I think that was probably a word from the 1800s. You know, they walked around preening like, like peacocks. Flaunting. They were all about the show and the good look and the, the outfit, man. It was all about them. They love to be addressed with respect, rabbi, father, master. They love the seats of honor. They'd go to synagogue, they got the front row. They'd go to get invited to banquets because, hey, it was the right thing to do to pull them in and to have spiritual guidance in your life. And the people were sincere in that. And they would pull them in and give them a seat of honor. But these people loved it. Jesus isn't condemning that people gave them respect, but he's condemning that these people loved the position. It was selfish. It was taking. We talked a few weeks ago about the worship at the temple, remember? And remember how the leaders of the temple, their job was to roll out the red carpet for the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable and the most alienated, and yet here they were, charging high interest rates, ripping them off. Jesus is just extending that language here. He's just repeating it. This is sort of a short version of what he did on Monday. That's what these people do. That's what these people are about, and they're supposed to be your leaders. They're supposed to take care of you, but it's all about them. I had a chance to go to Cambodia a few years ago. I got a great picture. And uh, the guys in the orange are monks. And the culture there, I, I didn't understand. You see them all around. Um, and I, I'm not being demeaning here at all. This, this, is, this is just a different culture. It's awesome. It was great to be there. I loved it. But they sort of were 
uh, homeless. That was sort of what I would equate them with when, when you saw them. That, that's what they look like. That's how they seem to be. Because in Cambodia, I later learned that they don't get paid. So they rely on the gifts of the people. And here, they needed a ride, and so this guy gave two of them a ride. And in Cambodia, if three of them needed a ride, you would have saw three guys on that thing, plus the driver. Maybe four if they could have fit him in there. Trust me, I got some hilarious pictures of five and six people on one moped. But that was, that's just the culture, and I'm not shaming it. It's great. It's awesome. People would just help them out and give them food and give donations to them, and that's just, that was their job. They were the monks, and I guess you'd go to them, maybe have talks with them here and there, but that's how they were taken care of. Well, in, in, in the ancient Near East, in, in Israel at the time, the teachers of the law, the, the scribes, were sort of the same thing. They weren't paid. They relied on the handouts, the gifts of other people. But in verse 40, Jesus said they took advantage of the gifts of people. He used this phrase, if you remember, he said, they devour widows' homes. The word he used for devour is the word for totally consume. They left them penniless. They took every dime out of anyone they could get it from. That's the teachers of the law. That's your minister, your religious leader, the person you're obligated to go to because they sit in that seat and you seek minister from, ministry from them and they are the people who are sucking you dry. And the most vulnerable people were the people hurt the most by this behavior. And then they would make great prayers. And they made their religion, they made their, you know, they made it look all pious, but it was anything but pious. I want you to listen to this passage. And I want you to think about what Jesus said when he said, you will be punished severely. Genesis chapter 22. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows, and your children will become fatherless. Don't think for a minute that Jesus didn't have that passage in his mind. And don't think they missed it when he said, you will be punished severely. You know, they were respected. And many people disliked them. But few people could call them out like Jesus called them out. That's why the crowds loved him. He told the truth. And he didn't hide it. He didn't dance around it. He didn't flower it up. It was unadulterated, and it was honest, and it was raw, and it was hard. And the people loved it. You could just see them, yes, because they knew who these people were. They knew what they were about. We see this today in our society. We have televangelists constantly fleecing people for more and more, and they live in big houses and drive big cars and 
They love to celebrate themselves and draw attention to themselves. And you hate it, don't you? It's gross. They take advantage of people, people who are vulnerable, who may not know better, or who may, out of a sincere desire, thinking they're doing God's will, is, will give everything they have. These were the same guys who, from the beginning of the day, had accused Jesus of heresy, of duplicity, of foolishness, and of ignorance. And they were the ones guilty of all four of those things, and much worse. And Jesus called them out. The people loved it. One of the reasons why I came to this church many, 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 many years ago because it felt real. It felt genuine. It felt like we were not, like, like the people I met were not fake. And they weren't doing things for show. And they seemed to be living their life in a completely different way than I had ever seen religious people live. And that really inspired me. I studied the Bible late at night with some of the guys, early on learning about the Bible. And I remember going to their apartment, and it was a dump. It was in a terrible neighborhood. The elevator was very scary to go up and down in. You never sh wasn't sure if it'd get there. And I'd show up at midnight, because I got off work late, and they'd be waiting for me to read the Bible. And there was no pot on the table. There was no inappropriate magazines. There was no, there was no, they were actually being Christians. And I thought that was impressive to me, because at 12 o'clock at night, I thought I was a Christian. I didn't look like them. And nobody I knew who said they were a Christian at 12 o'clock at night looked like them because they were with me. And that spoke to me. That said a lot to me. That, 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 that inspired me. To be able to go somewhere and see people really doing it. Not perfect, but genuinely doing it why I came. People were practicing what they preach. But I got to admit, guys, I worry. I worry about us. I worry, are we losing our edge? Wow. <laughs> are we getting comfortable? I mean, look, I know that this is probably more speaking to me because I'm the minister. And I believe me, I take this stuff very seriously. I'm the one that will be killed with the sword. But I got to pass it on to you, too. We're a priesthood of all believers. You're an example every bit as much as I am. Do you practice what you preach? Do you have the edge that you once had? Or are you, you happy with your clothes? Are you comfortable in your position? You like your seat every Sunday and don't let anybody sit in it because that's going to really tick you off. I have in my notes, I didn't put it in my notes, but I, I really, I'm going to throw this out there. I'll let you guys decide. I was really tempted at this point in the sermon to ask everybody to get up and switch a seat. <laughs> Nobody seems to be volunteering. Are you comfortable in your seat of honor? Change your seat. Try a new perspective for a minute. Sit somewhere else.
All right. I didn't say church was over. I said just get a new seat. Go ahead and sit down. Doesn't that feel different all of a sudden? Doesn't that feel a little weird? Hopefully that helps us get a little looser and not so uptight, not so overly comfortable in our position. It's so easy to do, to get comfortable in our position and just like it the way it is and not want anything to change. And that's, that's just one of the crimes of these guys. That's just one of the reasons that Jesus was calling curses down on them. I'm so grateful for Mission Love because Mission Love is a challenge to treat people better. It's our mission as a church, but it's really a challenge to treat people better. And let me say this really quickly. If you don't feel challenged by mission love, you don't get it. It should be bothering you right now. We should be a little bit perplexed and a little bit bothered and a little bit pushed and a little bit out of our comfort zone, even just a little, but it should be affecting you. It's affecting me. Verse 41. I'm trying not to be emotional because this, this part of the message is really powerful now that I understand it. And I want you to understand it because this is all the same interaction. So I want you to read this next part very carefully. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. It is not a coincidence that Jesus went from rebuking the teachers of the law, from calling curses down on them for their abuse of widows, that he turns the crowd's attention to the place where the offerings are get, and he points out a widow was she one that they fleeced? Was that the last sense she had to give? Because the teachers of the law, the scribes, the religious leaders, the temple authorities had gotten to that point where they were literally draining her dry. I have taught this passage countless times in church, and you've heard it taught all about giving. We talk about how great the widow is, she's sacrificial giving, we should give sacrificially. I now realize that that's not the point of this passage. Now, I'm not saying it can't be referenced, it can't be used, but you got to know the point first. And the point 
is that this widow represented everything wrong with Israel at the time. They were hurting and abusing and using and taking advantage of the very people that they were supposed to care for. When the spiritual health of a community and its leadership gets this low, no amount of sacrifice is going to save it. Only judgment remains. On another deeper level, if you want to get really deep into theology, this widow represents something else. She is the nail in the coffin for Israel. That's what she represents. The end of the temple, the temple system, flawed, limited human leadership that's corruptible, She's the end. She's the exclamation point on why we need a Messiah like Melchizedek. Eternal, divine, uncorruptible. Who will minister to everyone and will not take, but will serve. Next week, we're going to talk about the the rest of the story. But what basically happens, and I need to tell you just to give you a heads up, Jesus leaves. As he leaves, he walks past the temple, and he says, not one stone will be left. And he never talks to the leaders again. It's over. He's done. He leaves the city. The next time he comes back is for Passover, and he gets arrested, and that's the, we transition into the, the, the story of the crucifixion. I've been thinking about this message a lot. It has bothered me a lot. Because I see a scribe in me. I see some false religion in me. I don't want it. I am sincere. I genuinely want to be a good minister. I genuinely want to care for people that I'm supposed to care for. I know I'm flawed. I know I'm not perfect. I try. But I see it in all of us. There's a little teacher of the law. There's a little religious hypocrisy in every one of us. And it comes out in how we treat each other and how we treat others around us. So I've been thinking a lot about this message and how do I respond to it? What, what's my takeaway? And I'm gonna share it, but we're closing out here. And I wanna ask, invite anyone who's willing to share what's hitting them. What's your takeaway? Think about it for a minute. I've had a whole couple of weeks There's no wrong answer here, but I really would like to invite you as believers in Jesus, as members of our church, as as part of this community to be a part of the conversation. What's speaking to you?
because we're flawed, we need Jesus. Look at people for it's people with a soul, not the outer appearances. Yes. We all need to change. A couple more, yeah. I feel that this, myself, others like what you're saying, get so caught up in what, what we think the word means, what we think we're supposed to be doing. And instead, I think we, we miss the boat in so many occasions where what it really means is to love each other, to have faith and believe in God. Yeah, we need to love each other, not miss that. That's the most important. Give our heart to this. Yes. I saw a hand over here. Yes. Yeah. Satan never quits. <laughs> Satan never quits. Yeah, it's always a battle. One more. Okay, two more. Well, three more. You three, and then we'll be done. Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to leave anybody out. Right. Right. Thinking about people before you think about yourself. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So beware of stagnation. Yeah, it's great. People right next to you, you know, it's like, oh, help each other, get out of here because it's not healthy. Right. We can do way more, you know. Help each other not be stagnant. I'm repeating back because this is recorded, so it, there might be a dead spot in there, just so you know why I'm doing that. But thank you, Gerardo, that was great. Last one. So care more about God's opinion of you and less about what people think of you. Well, here's my takeaway. Ministry is about people. And I need to treat people better. We're going to stand. We're going to close out now in a word of prayer. Thank you very much. Father, thank you so much for this great group of people. Thank you so much for the chance to look at your word and be moved by it. I pray that we leave here not just in, you know, thinking about it, but changed. And that we really do have on our heart what's on your heart. And that we really do love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs> you want to be selfish. Yeah. <laughs>